0: You have a Bible with you, I hope, or there's a Bible at least there in the pew. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Take a moment and turn to Isaiah 53. That's page 511 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning, Christmas is traditionally a time dedicated to wishing joy and love to close friends and families, maybe people we haven't talked to in a long time. And one of the ways that we do this, we keep in touch with others is through the writing and sending out of an annual Christmas card. How many of you send out Christmas cards? Raise your hand. Now, let's see, keep them up if you've actually sent them out already. <laughs> Have you, exactly. Have you ever wondered how this tradition started? Is this one of those things you ever ask yourself, well, who, maybe you're going, who started this? <laughs> how did this tradition start? Why and when did we start sending Christmas cards? It was actually started in the 1840s, not that long ago. In the 1840s, a man named Sir Henry Cole, (laughs) like many other people at that time, would buy decorative paper, and he would pen greetings and good wishes to his family and friends. But he found it to be a cumbersome task. So Henry Cole enlisted an artist friend of his, John Calcott Horsley, to actually create a card for him, okay? And he wanted that card to have a simple message that could be duplicated that he could then send out to his family and friends. And so what was created was this three-panel card. The center panel showed a family celebrating, and the two wing panels showed people feeding the hungry and clothing the poor. And Horsley <laughs> lithographed, this is a true story, and hand-colored a 1,000 of these cards. And that was the first commercial Christmas card. Now, what's very interesting about this is that religious Christmas cards didn't actually come onto the scene until the 1890s. As, as these Christmas cards became more popular, there was a perceived need to give focus to the true meaning of Christmas. Does this sound familiar? The birth of Jesus Christ. So even then, people were to, trying to remind people of the reason for the season. I, I bring all this up because I wanna suggest to you this morning that despite this little history le- lesson that I've given you, I think the prophet Isaiah actually penned the first Christmas card, or if you will, the first Christmas letter. And I want to ask how many of you write the Christmas letter, man. That's a, that's a thing. <laughs> how many of you groan when you get the Christmas letter, right? Uh, okay. In Isaiah's case, as we've seen over these last few weeks of Advent, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah crafted the first original pictures for us of the christmas story and that's why we come back to them and as you have it open to isaiah 53 i want us to continue in reading this letter to discover the message of the story of christmas so if you will join me in reading isaiah 53 and we're going to start at verse 1 and read all the way to the end isaiah writes who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed he grew up before him like a tender shoot And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God. Smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought on us, peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like any good Christmas card or letter, Isaiah's message proclaims the coming of a savior. And we need to remember that ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, the world has been watching, waiting, longing for its deliverance and redemption. From the first pages of Genesis and onward, the scriptures are clear regarding God's promise that he would send a savior. This central figure was generally referred to by the people, as we know, as the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, God revealed more and more details about this Messiah and his work. With the prophet Isaiah, things, however, really start to come into focus. Isaiah, in fact, is the first one to tell us to look for a child. Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And just two chapters later in 9, Isaiah adds on to this, that this child will be a king. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And later chapters, as we know, as we've seen, of Isaiah continue to build upon this picture of the birth of hope. Isaiah 40 that John preached on just a few weeks ago. The victory over sin and death and the dawning of a new world. But here, in Isaiah 53, as Isaiah opens his 53rd chapter, he delivers a bombshell. His writing, and perhaps you were struck, maybe you didn't notice what scripture we were reading this morning, but were struck by this doesn't seem to fit here. His writing takes a sharp, unexpected turn and becomes a very different kind of Christmas letter. In contrast to the pictures we normally decorate our own Christmas cards with, stars, angels, shepherds, wise men, Isaiah begins to speak of infirmities, diseases, transgressions and iniquities, of sorrow and rejection, of pain and suffering, of piercing and punishment. With all the buildup that Isaiah has provided for us previously, we no doubt expected great things of this special baby born in the world, a formidable and powerful figure carrying an air of greatness, someone who could take down the corrupt and despotic Roman Empire with a wave of his hand. And yet, if those Bibles are still open, Isaiah reveals this baby will grow up with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And just as we start to look into the manger and ask, what would become of this child? Isaiah lets us know he will be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hide their faces. He will be despised and held in low esteem. And with these words, Right then, as we begin to wonder, what child then is this? How could such a child, as Isaiah describes it, live up to all his potential, live out of all that promise, the promises made about him by angels and shepherds alike? Isaiah fully unwraps, fully unwraps the unexpected, the surprise, the shocking gift of Christmas. And it is a graphic and startling revelation of how the world is saved. It is not a beautiful description of charismatic leadership or thunderous strength, it is a disturbing picture of weakness, of rejection, of suffering, death. That cute, cuddly little baby born into our dark world to be our light and life will grow up to be the man of sorrows swallowed by the darkness of death That blessed child, sleeping softly in a manger, professed to be the Savior of the world, will one day cry out in agony from the cross as the cursed and crucified Christ. The one who comes to us as the good shepherd to gather and protect his flock will become the Lamb of God who bears the sins of the world. This Christmas card from Isaiah provocatively reminds us the first and greatest present given to the world in Bethlehem, God with us will become an unwanted gift that we reject in return on Good Friday. That salvation is ours not with a bang, but with a whimper. Why? Why? That's the question an outsider always asks to our faith because this is messed up. This is messed up. Why an outsider to our faith will ask? That's the question that outsiders ask. And frankly, beloved, it's a question I'm not sure we wrestle with enough. Why? The reason is hinted to early on in our story, again, way back in the beginning, but it's explicitly fleshed out when the people of Israel are given the priesthood and the system of animal sacrifices in Leviticus. We studied Leviticus a few years ago, and if you're not familiar with it, the short and skinny is this. The purpose of the sacrifices were to show the cost of sin, that blood is life, that sin draws blood. It takes life from us. And so the cost of sin, the repayment is blood, the giving of life. And the the challenge is we can't give back what we already owe. Like all, as Isaiah says, like all sheep, we have gone astray. We can't give back what we already owe because anything we offer was already supposed to belong to God anyway. There's too much blood on our hands. We're already dead in our sins. So offering our lives to God means nothing. This is the vicious cycle we've trapped ourselves in. This is the the hole we've fallen into that we can't get out of. And Isaiah here in 53 reveals how Jesus came, how Christ breaks the cycle. Isaiah here describes what later on in the New Testament, I will argue, the letter to the Hebrews declares. If you were to read this side by side with the letter to the Hebrews, what Isaiah describes, the letter to the Hebrews declares that Jesus came as both the great high priest offering the sacrifice and as the one who becomes the sacrifice for the world. As the great high priest, Isaiah foretells that Jesus will take up our pain and bear our suffering. But even more than this, Isaiah describes how Jesus will become the ultimate and final sacrifice. He says Christ will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The iniquity of us all will be laid upon him. And in taking death upon himself, Jesus, being innocent, spotless, and free of guilt, standing in the place of all of us, he bears what we are and offers us what he is. He who was without sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Isaiah puts it here, by his wounds we are healed. He has brought us peace. That's the answer. That's the general answer. That's the theological response. That's the answer that gets an A in seminary. Am I right, John? Yes, I am. That's the explanation that our intellect, the problem-solving part of our nature perhaps grabs onto. But what I want to focus on this morning is that while Isaiah, what he details here, implicitly speaks to the explanation I've just given you, he backs it up, I want to delve further to what I perceive as Isaiah's specific answer. Not so much the head response as it is the heart response. The deeper reason Isaiah gives us for why Jesus is the one who born to die for us and I hope you still have those Bibles open if you do you're going to find that answer in verse 10 and I want you to read that first part of verse 10 out loud with me read to the comma you ready let's do it yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer did you hear that did you hear what you just read and again, I don't think you're fully going to appreciate the significance of the verse that we just read out loud together until I share the Hebrew word "kafates." That's being loosely translated here as "will." If you wanted to circle a word, it'd be "will." "Kafates" is the Hebrew word, and the reason why you're not going to appreciate it is because "kafates," this Hebrew word, it appears many times in the Old Testament, and "will," that word "will," doesn't do it justice. It would be better translated. And it's often translated in other versions of the Bible. The King James, for example, as pleased, delighted, or desired. So we're going to read it again. And this time, instead of it was the Lord's will, I want you to read it was the Lord's pleasure. You ready? Let's do it. Yet it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him and cause him to suffer. Did you hear what you just said? Because just like that, our hearts sink and they start to flutter nervously. Just like that, our tight and pat intellectual answers are blown apart and we struggle to get our minds around this radical phrase. How could it be that God the Father would ever take pleasure, delight, desire in the crushing and suffering of his son. If you're a parent, if you're ever thinking of being one, or if you at least at the, at the very least know someone who is, think of the protective instincts parents have for their children. As a father myself, I, I don't want any harm to come to my children. As a parent, I actively <laughs> Try to protect them from danger and difficulty. Don't ask me to imagine them being crushed or grieved, let alone ask me to inflict that pain on them personally. Beloved, this radical and controversial word from Isaiah is intended to make us silent, to cause us to lose our breath, to stop short, And to ask questions. What could possibly motivate our Creator to bring a child, his child, into the world only to be born to die, to be crushed under the weight not of his sin, but all our sin? What is so powerful? What is so compelling? To enable our father to experience any pleasure at all in the suffering of his son. Many of us may believe we don't have the answer to this question. Not only for the outsider, but for many of us in the faith. This is the point where, we, if we're honest, we really struggle. We don't know. Many of us believe we don't have the answer. But the truth is, I'm willing to bet even if we haven't realized it yet, taken it to heart, we all have the answer memorized. We learned it in Sunday school or in our first Bible study. We plaster it, in fact, as Christians all over sandwich boards as we evangelize on street corners. We paint it in big letters to hold up on signs at major sporting events. We point to it every time we seek to share our faith with another person It might be on your refrigerator at home or on a bumper sticker on your car or a coffee mug or posted somewhere else on a wall in your house. The answer, beloved, is found in John 3.16. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The answer is love. The answer is love. From the very beginning, all the way back in the garden, God, our Father, looked at us naked and hiding from him in the bushes. He saw the relational separation between him as creator and us as created and motivated by a deep and personal love. God's grieved heart in that moment willingly became a broken one as he made a promise right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 3 to save us all by the offering of his son. God was willing to give all, to hold nothing back, so that none would perish, so that everyone could be redeemed and made whole. God's pleasure was rooted in what resulted from being crushed and suffering for all our sin, a restored relationship with us, the peace on earth and goodwill among people that we sing and talk about at Christmas time. That's what God's pleasure was. God's pleasure, it's so important we hear this, it was God's pleasure in doing this was not sadistic or masochistic, as though our Lord enjoys giving or receiving pain. Our father didn't experience pleasure from the particular moments of physical, emotional, mental, and relational suffering of his son Jesus. And furthermore, so important we hear this, the father did not force the son Jesus to be born into this world. Paul reminds us of this in his letter to the Philippians. Paul writes that Jesus, being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The Father did not force the Son, Jesus, to sacrifice his life for the world. Paul goes on, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, why? Why did Jesus come down into this world through such humble beginnings? Why did Jesus endure the harsh realities of life in this fallen world that we all know so well? And we point to the cross, and beloved, the cross was the extremely painful culmination of a life of suffering. But understand, the cross is the centerpiece, but it wasn't the only location of Jesus' suffering. Despite all the ways that we try to romanticize and dress up the shock and scandal of the nativity, you know what I'm talking about, right? We make Mary a little older and mature. We make the manger a lot cleaner and brighter. And we cast Jesus as the cleanest, quietest, picture-perfect Gerber baby. But despite all the things we try to do to hide the embarrassment of the nativity, the truth of the matter is, from the very beginning, Christmas marks the beginning of Jesus' crushing. Because Jesus was born into poverty. And more than that, within the first years of his birth, Jesus and his family were forced to flee for their lives from a murderous king. And from there, as Jesus grew, he continued to experience pain at the hands of the people he loved. He was not accepted as the king or the political leader the people had expected. They did not accept him as the son of God. His own family, do you remember this, thought he was crazy, nuts, certifiable, an embarrassment, come home. Jesus was continually mocked and rejected and scorned By people until his life of suffering reached its crescendo on the cross. Why? Why did Jesus allow the abuse that he endured? He could have stopped it at any time. Why didn't he? He could have stopped it at any time, and yet he accepted it all without opening his mouth in complaint or protest. Why? Love. Love. Jesus loved the people in spite of what they did to him. Out of his love, we remember from the cross, he was willing to forgive those who were cursing his name. Because of his love, Jesus on the cross carried the burden of our brokenness, paid the price for our sin, and ultimately bore the scars of our death in order to make us clean and whole, to set us free, to give us life. And my friends, what I want you to hear this morning, the message of Christmas is Jesus continues to love us in this same way. God in Christ still has this same love for you, for me, for each and every one. And we do well to remember at a time like this, at a season like this, that we profess a belief in the Trinity, that God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And that means that when the Father was putting all of our sin on his own Son, God was putting it on God's self. Why? Out of love. Beloved, Easter unwraps the significance of the real gift of Christmas. It unwraps the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. And that truth of God with us rightly sinks in when we realize God didn't merely come into this world in Jesus Christ to live among us, to be one of us, but it pleased him out of his great love to come down and die for us. And I keep hitting this hard this morning because there will be some time Sometime next week, sometime next month, sometime next year. Heck, it might even be right now. There will be moments in life where God confuses you. It might be a moment of suffering that cripples you so terribly, you will question why God has allowed this pain to be your experience it might be an experience of relational disappointment. Someone lets you down. Someone turns their back on you. Someone takes advantage of you. Someone treats you wrongly. And you will wonder why God doesn't intercede in this relationship on your behalf. Or it could be a lack of resources, a material or financial crisis in a time of need. And you will have your doubts about the Lord's provision. We all all reach that place, some of us more than once, where we find ourselves in the thick of a circumstance, a location, a relationship where we have questions, where we are perplexed by the contrast between what we see happening in our world and what we believe about God's plans for this world. We look around, poverty, disease, homelessness, violence, terrorism, and it looks like evil is prospering, triumphing, while goodness and righteousness cannot be found. And we will say, why? Why? But the message of Christmas, the gift of Christmas, is we don't have to be afraid of what the future holds. We together do not have to lose sleep at night worrying about tomorrow. The message of Christmas fully unwrapped at Easter is that God knows what we actually need, when we need it, and he will come through. Once again, the words of the Apostle Paul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My friends, there is no more clear-pointed, rest-giving demonstration of the love of God for you than the gift of his Son. And we can't afford to take such a gift lightly. We must not take a gift like this for granted. My friends... And and just sitting for just these few minutes in the fullness of what this is, this gift is, of who Jesus is, we cannot dare use this gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus Christ as something or as someone that simply meets an immediate need we have, that that just soothes a momentary hurt or disappointment. We can't use Jesus as some kind of fail-safe that we only reach for when our circumstances get really, really desperate. The gift of Christmas, of God with us, of God for us, is intended to be the gift that keeps on giving. Our hearts are to be filled so much with Jesus' love that the power of his presence in our lives propels us to gratefully and generously share his love through our service to others. The gift of Christmas, of God with us, of God for us is intended to be the gift that keeps on giving as we are with, as we are for others in the name of Jesus. Beloved, God came down in Jesus Christ so that we would reach out, draw near and touch those around us so that his loving presence and healing power would flow through us to each other. Just a few chapters after 53, Isaiah is going to put it this way. Hear it. Isaiah will write, arise, talking to us, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. Beloved, in the thick of this present darkness, we are called to shine with the light of Jesus. We are called to reflect the fullness of the Lord's love and be agents of healing in the midst of a broken world. Do you hear that? We have prepared in so many ways for Christmas yet again, but are we prepared for this? Are we willing to do more than receive the gift of Christ this Christmas? Are we willing, you and I together, to become the gift of Christmas, the presence of Jesus to others? It's just a few days, and we're full right now, but in just a few days, frazzled people will step into the sanctuary of this church. Frazzled people are going to step into the sanctuary of your home. Your home. And out of their fragmented, frantic, and busy lives, for one day they will step outside the hustle and bustle and they will be open, maybe even looking for a little hope. My friends, as followers of Jesus, do we have more to offer them? Do we have more to offer them besides some wonderful decorations? a few joyful songs, and a celebratory exchange of gifts. Love comes down to be shared. God is with us when we are present, when we are engaged, when we are committed, when we are protecting, when we are encouraging, when we are serving each other. My friends, the world doesn't need, and the world can't afford to wait for perfect people. The world doesn't need and the world can't afford to wait for perfect people. What the world needs is people who are honest about their own doubts, who dare to name their own fears, who are willing to confess their own sins, and who choose to love anyway, not in their own strength, but in the strength of the one they are relying to to face each and every day. Who choose to love not with reservations or restrictions, but choose to love unconditionally out of the forgiveness they have received that is their hope in Jesus Christ. How generous are you willing to be this Christmas? How much are you willing to give? Are you willing to give from what you have? Or are you willing to give from what you receive? Because what we receive from Christ is unconditional love. What we receive from Christ is forgiveness again and again and again. What we receive from Christ is hope, hope. (laughs) Isaiah's Christmas card doesn't talk about wise men or shepherds, Rudolph, or Jingle Bells, or Winter Wonderlands for that matter. And this is because Isaiah reminds us our hope The hope of Christmas is not just that Jesus came, but that Jesus came for a purpose. He didn't come to heal a few people and start a new religion. He didn't come to plant a bunch of churches. He came to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, let us gather around the Christmas tree Isaiah envisions here. One not of evergreen, but formed in the shape of a cross. One decorated not with lights and tinsel, but illuminated by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sins and mine. Oh, come. Let us adore him. The glory of God wrapped up in an unbelievable act of condescension. The love of God in the flesh, pleased to dwell with us and to die for us. The hope of God, born in Christ, raising and leading us into an eternal future. Amen.